Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, we are going to finish up John chapter 2 today. We're going to see a picture of what superficial faith um, looks like. And it's really important today, this subject matter that we will talk about. By way of introduction, I want to deal with something that I think is prevalent in our day and time. And it's also something that um, affects the church. And Carl's going to put this first slide up there. And it's the word validation. This is the word, um, this is a definition of validation. Validation is a recognition or an affirmation that a person or their feelings or opinions are valid or worthwhile. Now, we live in a day and time where um, people in the church, people in our culture have all kinds of uh, aspects of a worldview and what they think, how they think the world operates, how the church operates, and many of those things are false. Even though they're strongly believed in, they're strongly affirmed, and, and there's philosophies, and there's books, and there's conferences, and there's all kinds of things about that. But if something's wrong, it's wrong. But the problem in our lives comes in this, is that when we have a, a viewpoint of God, a viewpoint of Christianity, of the church, um, of a spouse, or whoever it may be, and it doesn't line up with Scripture, that is something that we don't validate and, and affirm because it's not true. Because what we want is ultimately we want everything that is true. And you see this pursuit for validation um, over and over in our culture. You see it in the mad obsession um, that our culture has in regard to beauty and, and to um, looks. You see it in, in the pursuit to look young and feel young. And can I just remind you that as every second goes by, we are not getting any younger, we are getting older, and we cannot reverse that process, but our culture is trying to do that. You see that people are seeking validation all the time in, in regard to what power and influence can bring in people's lives, and uh, you see it also just um, with money, um, have enough money to be able to to buy enough things, to, to give affirmation and validation to our life, to be able to say, boy, I, I, have, I have achieved what I'm supposed to achieve. And over and over, there's this mad desire for validation about a number of different things. And what I want to do today, and we'll see from the life of Jesus, is I want to call you and I to seek the validation, and there's only one place to seek it that, that matters, and that's in a relationship with God. What does God think about things? And I think all of us, I think desiring a validation um, is not, not bad in and of itself if it's placed and grounded in, in, the right, in the right way. But the problem is, is that so often we are seeking validation in places um, that we should not. And I want to I just briefly touch on four dangers in regard to this, and they have everything to do with what we're going to read in the text here in just a moment. Here's why it's dangerous to seek validation outside of God. And the first one, and to seek it from people, and to seek it from the ways of the world. And the first one is simply this. It's, it comes from uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. This is what the prophet writes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So one of the reasons we don't put a lot of value and stake in what the culture thinks, maybe what somebody else thinks to shape us, is that sometimes people have a heart that's not right and walking with God, and we're seeking a validation from someone whose heart and the words or maybe what they're desiring of us, it comes from whether they realize it or not, it's a deceptive place. And there's a darkness 
that the Bible speaks about that's connected to our heart. So we have to be really, really careful about that. The second uh, place that we need to be careful about seeking validation is in regard to pride. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that word before, but pride's kind of around, and pride is about us uh, standing our ground, trying to be right no matter what. And the Bible has something to say about that. This is what Psalm 31 verse 23 says. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And God is not into pride. God is into humility, and he honors the humble in heart. This is what John writes in his first letter, 1 John 2.16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, John says, along with its desires, and whoever, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I've seen it in my own life, and you've probably seen it in your life, or we've seen it in other people's lives. We have a viewpoint of things, and, and it's clear to everybody around us in our lives. It's clear to God. It's clear to the Bible that our viewpoint of things is wrong. But what do we do? We're going to stand our ground in our pride because we can't be wrong, and we're going to fight. And it causes so much issues in our life to stand our ground in our pride. Here's a third area that I think is a reason why it's dangerous to place to seek validation from the world and from the system is that our culture is quite corrupt. And we live in a day and time where we see that all around us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, this is what Paul says. Don't miss this. Paul writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What that means is this. The mind that is, is only seeking things of this earth, validation, affirmation from the things here, it's hostile to God because it's not going to listen. It, it is opposed to God. It is a fighting and a clashing with God. And so Paul says, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. And here's why. For it does not submit to God's law or to God's truth. And, and then Paul writes, indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit and follow um, God. And so this ways of the world, these things of the world, can greatly influence us. And the fourth danger of why we are not to seek affirmation as to the value and the worth of our lives is the danger that has drifted in the church is this one, that the danger that the cross is not enough for us to shape our lives. And the cross must be enough for us to shape us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are outside of the faith who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I want to remind us, church, today, do not ever move on from the cross. Do not. Do not move on. Grow in the knowledge of it. Grow in the reality of what it means. And let it become a bigger and bigger reality Every day, And the cross speaks many things. And one of the great things that it speaks is this, is that there is a validation that comes to our lives, that gives a significance to our lives that comes from God Himself, not from the world. And what we want is the validation that comes from Him that affirms His children that the great reality of our life is that we were nothing and now we have become children of God that we were dead and now we are alive and this great reality that he has done in our life should be embraced. And we come to a place where we see that Jesus is the treasure of treasures. So at the end of January, 
uh, Mark preached for me and that weekend uh, Pam and Canyon and I went down to Waco to see my parents and and uh, newspapers have changed throughout the years if you've been or been around a while they are much thinner than they used to be and but I got the Waco Tribune Herald um, and it was uh, gosh I don't even know what day that was December the 28th or whatever whatever that day was but for the past 50 something years the high school that I went to had a basketball tournament after Christmas and it was called the M.T. Rice Invitational Basketball Tournament. People from all over the country for forever and ever have been coming and and so <clears throat> I was reading about the tournament of the high school that I went to which was a long long time ago when I graduated um, but I'm reading this article and I get to a certain paragraph in the article and I just kind of, I'm sitting in my dad's chair, and I kind of sit up a little taller in my dad's chair. And I'm reading something in there that has lifted me and, and brought some validation. And I got so excited. I'm reading the article, and it says this. Since December of 1983, the last time the Midway Boys won the M.T. Rice Invitational. Well, I sat up in my chair when I read that because that was my team. I was the MVP of that tournament that year, leading scorer of the tournament. And I thought, yeah, my team, yeah, uh uh-huh. My team, 36 years ago, last one, the M.T. Rice Invitational, my team that I led. And and I said to Pam, hey, Pam. And I read that paragraph, and she's like. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes our spouses really validate and encourage us in our lives. And so it's. She kind of did the, oh, that's nice, Stoke. And so, anyway. And so I thought, well, my dad will think this is awesome because he was there and he's seen many of those. I'm like, Dad, and he's like, yep, y'all were the last one. And for a brief moment in Waco, I don't know what it was, December the 28th, I'm sitting in my dad's chair. Shh, I didn't go to church that Sunday. Shh. I went and played disc golf. I was a bad sinner that Sunday morning. But I was on vacation. I prayed for y'all and I prayed for Mark, but I'm sitting in my chair on that Sunday morning and for a brief moment, something on the inside of me said I had worth. And then for a brief moment, I thought, how silly that something that happened 36 years ago that really, in the moment, was pretty cool because I remember winning that tournament and I remember getting that MVP trophy. But you know it's not lasting. And what I want to remind you and I today, and we'll see from the life of Jesus, is there is nothing in this world, no matter how sweet it feels in the moment, that is as validating as what this symbol says to us. That God's Son so loved the world that He came here and He laid His life down for us. And so I want to talk today from the life of Jesus and look at this issue of validation. Look with me, John 2. 23 through 25, and then let's walk through the text today. Here's what John writes. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But notice Jesus' response. And so they're excited about what Jesus is doing. Look what Jesus' response is. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, Because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So let me deal with this. Um, First of all, this morning, let's deal with uh, the personal power and presence of Jesus 
in Jerusalem at that Passover. Now, the Passover feast lasted eight days, and we've talked over the last couple of weeks that, that reality is that my, most likely on the first day of the Passover feast, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, he sees all the money changers there, he sees all the animals there, he drives out the court of the Gentiles on the first day of the Passover feast, and he cleans out the place. And then the text here tells us that Jesus began to do things, he began to do um, miracles. And one of the incredible realities that must have been amazing during those eight days was to watch the personal power and presence of Jesus in the midst of the people in the temple doing God kind of things. Now, we know that the Bible affirms that it's more unique to walk by faith, and I know that the Bible says that, and it's true. But just journey back with me for a moment. Can you imagine what it was like to watch Jesus for six to seven days open the eyes of the blind, people who couldn't walk, they could walk. People who couldn't talk could start talking. People who couldn't hear could hear. And over and over, people who had demons in them, Jesus was casting that out. And just picture, people, Jews from all over the world had come to the Passover feast. There they are. Jesus is in the temple. He is healing people. He is casting out demons. Just unbelievable, powerful things were happening and all of this was personal. It was being done in the lives of people. Everything that he was doing personal was the power of God. Jesus wasn't doing card tricks, magic tricks. He wasn't juggling in the temple, doing really cool things like, wow, how in the world did he do that? He wasn't doing sleight of hand stuff. I mean, he was doing stuff where people had infirmities, and he was touching them or speaking to them, and all of a sudden, healing was happening. So the personal presence of God into individual lives of people was being manifest, and there was God himself right in the midst of the people. Isaiah writes these words. Therefore, in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself, he will give you a sign, and this is a sign he's going to give you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, growing up, nobody called Jesus Emmanuel. They called him Jesus. That was his name. And so, so this name, Emmanuel, indicated not what you called him, his birth name. It indicated who he would be. He would be God among the people. He would be God with us, God in a body, God who would come to be among the people. And so here we are at the Passover feast 2,000 years ago. Jesus had come. He cleansed out the temple. Now he's healing people, the personal ministry of Jesus in the lives of people, the power of God opening the eyes of the blind, being powerful in the midst of the people, His presence, God with us, was there. And He had come just then as He has today to bring life transformation to people. Now I want you to hear this because it's critically important. Jesus didn't come to bring self-improvement in our lives. He came to replace our deadness with His life. So this is a Christ replacement work that He was going to do. In salvation, the old is gone. Who do we get? We get Him living inside of us. And that's why the church must never be about preaching self-motivation improvement things. We are about 
saying these words, and I love this reality, that God, through His Son Jesus and in the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside people's bodies, that we become the temple of God. And He had come to do this Christ replacement work. And so that's why every Sunday, I'm not here to to pat you on the back and, and say how awesome you are. I'm here to, to say how awesome He is. And because He's so awesome and He's so good, guess what? He's so loving and we get the benefit of the beauty and the love and the depth that He's a God who loves people like you and I who don't have it together. But He can put us together and He can make us whole. And ultimately, when our salvation is finally complete, we'll be free from the trappings of this world, the trappings of sin, the trappings of death, the trappings of tears, and we will dwell with Him forever and ever and ever. So He came to do a Christ-replacing work, and His presence was unbelievably manifest. Secondly, I want to show you just how significant of a work He was doing in Jerusalem. So we're going to look at three, three places here, just real briefly, right here around John 2. Look at John 2, 23 again with me. So He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Now, John likes to use the word sign instead of miracle. Um, a sign is a miracle, but a miracle, when, when the Bible uses the word miracle, it focuses on exactly what happened. John uses the word sign, and this was a Greek word that indicated you need to look a little beyond the actual event that happened and look beyond it and see its meaning. And the miracles that Jesus were doing were signs that showed that this is God who had come. This is a sign that God was present among the people. Now go to John chapter 3, verse 2. We'll begin looking at this next week. Um, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. And in John 3, 2, it says this, This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So where, where was Nicodemus? He was in the, at the Passover feast watching Jesus do miracles. He's a Pharisee. He's seen Jesus clean out the temple. He's watched Jesus for six or seven days do miracles during the Passover feast. And he's amazed by it. And he comes to seek Jesus. And he's heard Jesus teach. He's seen Jesus do incredible miracles. Go to John chapter 4. Look at one other verse. Look with me in verse 45 of John 4. So Jesus goes to Galilee in John 4, 45. It says, so when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. Here's why they welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. All right, go back to John chapter 2. So I just want to touch on this for a moment before we move to point 3 this morning. I, 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 think we, I don't think we can even imagine what it was like at that Passover. I mean, word gets out, day 2. Hey, bring your blind friend to the temple. There's a man there that's opening the eyes of the blind. I mean, just, I don't, I don't know how many people you can heal in a day, 
But he's doing such incredible work that it's clear and evident to everybody, to the Galileans. It's clear and evident to Nicodemus. It's clear and evident to the other people that were there that something miraculous is happening. This is incredible. And the miraculous work of Jesus was taking place. Now, we know that Jesus was teaching, not just healing, because of what Nicodemus said. Because Nicodemus said nobody teaches. He, he, he uses that word, but he also speaks about the signs that Jesus was doing. Now, one of the things we know that was true about Jesus is that when he called people to follow, he was always clear about that. He was not, and you know, he didn't kind of, he wasn't wishy-washy about his call. And so he was telling people and communicating to people, this is what it looks like to follow me, as well as in, in his teaching, as well as doing the miracles. Now, from the outside, let me, let's move on to point three. And point three is this is what makes a move of God? From the outside, if you would have been in Jerusalem at this Passover feast, there would have been an excitement in you as a Jewish person to think this, the Messiah is finally come. He's here. We are living under Roman domination. He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. He's going to overthrow the Romans. This was a common idea, and we see it running through the Gospels, that the Jews thought that this is what the Messiah was going to do. And from the outside, you would have maybe talked, we would have talked with one another, and we would have said, there's about to be a move of God in our midst. Now, there had already been a move of God that had been preparation for Jesus with John the Baptist out in the wilderness, and it told us that thousands and thousands of people were coming out from all of the cities and going out to John at the Jordan River, and they were repenting of their sins, confessing their sins, and being baptized by John. And so there was already this move. But in the temple, can you imagine John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, one of the greatest men who's ever lived on the earth. But can you imagine what kind of move of God would happen if God himself was there and he started it? Far more powerful, far more lasting than anything John the Baptist could do. But here's Jesus, and he just doesn't seem to get caught up in the reality of the crowd. And so what makes up a move of God? And we will see in the text today, there was something that was lacking that was even happening and taking place with John the Baptist that didn't happen in the temple that day. It looked like a movement of God was beginning, and Jesus would be its leader. And knowing the hearts of the people, they were excited about getting rid of the Roman oppression and the occupation. And boy, if if Jesus would just embrace the moment, he could capitalize on the excitement of the people. But I want to remind you and I today, popular, contrary to popular church lingo that you often hear, Jesus did not come to start a movement. He came to establish the church. Now the church is used to start movements in the world. But Jesus could have right then and there capitalized on the moment, raised up an army. They could have marched. They could have protested. They could have done a number of different things. But that's not primarily why He came. Now, the church is always a movement. It is always moving. It is always advancing. uh, Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail. Why? Because the church is that powerful because it is founded on the glory and the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. 
But he, he didn't come to primarily do that. He came to do this work of establishing salvation and establishing the church. Now, there are some basic themes to every great awakening throughout the world, and there have been some incredible ones um, throughout the world's history. The Verlanders lived in, in, in a country with the Welsh Revival and just unbelievable things um, uh, that took place in the Welsh Revival. Jonah went to Nineveh, uh, the whole city of Nineveh, through Jonah's preaching. That was a move of God, repented of their sin. Um, we've had in our nation two great awakenings. Under Josiah in the Old Testament, this young king uh, was doing lots of great reform in Judah, uh, restoring the temple, getting things back. Uh, as they were restoring the temple one day, God's word had been lost. The law, most likely Deuteronomy, had been lost. And as they're cleaning up things in the temple, they found this scroll and they read it. And they went into King Josiah and read it in the presence of King Josiah. And he ripped his clothes. Not like Luka Doncic did last night when he ripped his jersey the other night. I mean, Josiah just ripped his clothes and he fell on his face and he confessed his sin, um, uh, the people's sin. And he called the nation to repent. And God did this great work under the leadership of Josiah. But let me just say this. Because it's not taking place in Jerusalem with Jesus. Are y'all with me? Listen. There will never ever. And there never has been. And there will never ever be a move of God. And a waking of God. That does not include repentance. It just doesn't. It's not enough to just affirm the name of Jesus because they're affirming the name of Jesus in the text today. It's got to go further that, than that. And every time God has awakened people, there's a clear recognition of sin um, where, the, where people recognize I've sinned against God and I must, I, 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 am, I am bare before the Lord and so I, I need to be covered by His righteousness and His goodness and so there's a recognition that if I stay in my sinful state then I will be eternally separated from God and there's this confession of sin and this yielding and, and people recognize I can have a relationship with God and I can be in direct communication with Him and one of the other things that's always a part of the move of God of all the false trappings that are connected to religion they are broken down and they, and they fall apart and all of this happens and takes place but none of that was happening in Jerusalem because listen you cannot ever have true salvation and true belief if there's no repentance there must be repentance and a calling and a believing in God um, as the one who can rescue us so while it looked like a move of God was about to happen it wasn't because there was a great danger that was taking place which by the way is prevalent in our church culture today and it's the danger of a superficial faith and not having a supernatural faith. And so, fourthly, I want to talk about that. If you'll follow along with me now, let's read 23 again so that we can, and then I'm going to make some points here. So, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Again, on the surface, this looks very, very positive now john gives no specifics but we can just imagine the kind of things that jesus was actually doing but here's the reality they were in awe of his signs but they were not committing their lives to him as savior there was not a recognition that 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 i need to confess my sin and receive jesus and believe in jesus as the savior and while there was a lot of excitement jesus was not going to get caught up in that excitement 
with, the, with a superficial faith, it is not enough to just have a high view of Christ. We must come to Him in faith and confess Him and see that He's the only one who can rescue us from our sin. Superficial faith can be a starting place that can lead to authentic faith, but it must go further. Listen to these words from Jesus. John chapter 10, 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So believing in the miracles, and that's what was happening in Jerusalem, will not result in salvation unless it is accompanied by faith in Christ and repentance from sin. And this is what I've seen. I've been doing this for a long time. And if you've been around church culture as well in this country, you have seen this as well, is that what happens when those whose faith is grounded in mainly a search for the supernatural moments without a saving faith, those people go from one thing to another and it never ends. They hop, they go this and constantly searching for all different things. And what you find with the people who do this is that when things get hard, their faith, which seems so strong, so confident, so much excitement, it did not ever grow beyond being dependent upon signs and manifestations. And so they move on to something else, even walking away from Christianity. See, Jesus described that in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower, thirteen twenty. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Like, woo, this is awesome. And yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. So what I would like to do just for a few moments is I want to touch on four things that I think are great dangers that you and I must avoid. We must repudiate these things. We must, we must not embrace them. We must not get caught up in them. And I believe I, I just called the marks of super, superficial sign-seeking belief. So let me give four of them. Y'all with me? Are you excited? Ready? Okay, ready? All right. Let's, all right. Better face. Stephanie's ready. Are you ready, Stephanie? All right. Here's the first one. We must avoid embracing the newest trend, the newest leader, and the newest hot church. This is seen everywhere in our day. We're professing believers jump on the latest book, the latest podcast, the latest blogger, the latest church trend, the latest conference, the latest church philosophy, and it was no different 2,000 years ago. And it all comes back to this. There's a lack of contentment with the revelation of God in Scripture that it's not enough. And so people want to jump on new roads, new paths that are sought after. Well, Jesus, in some ways, was just the newest face. Israel had had lots of faces throughout its history, prophets and false prophets that had come along proclaiming a lot of different things. Now, this one was pretty awesome, and there was a sense the Messiah was here, God was doing things, and there was this great aspect of that. But I want to remind us something to not get caught up pursuing whatever's hot that we need to we need to look at things from a different perspective one of my favorite old testament passages is from jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 and this is what jeremiah tells judah 
Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads. What roads? And what do I do when I get by the roads? Stand by the roads. And Jeremiah says, and look. Okay, so I go stand by the roads. I'm looking. What am I to do when I get there? Then Jeremiah says this. Ask for the ancient paths, not the new paths, not the fresh path, not the exciting path. Ask for the ancient paths. And here's what you'll find. The ancient paths, Jeremiah says, it's where the good way is. And then Jeremiah says, and walk in it. And when you walk in it, here's what Jeremiah says, you will find rest for your souls. Now let's just be honest today. We live in an American culture today where turbulence, it just dominates our culture. There, we are restless. We are hopeless. We are longing for things. And so we're the most drugged culture in the history of the world. And I'm not against drugs helping us, the right kind of drugs helping us. But what, what causes this searching, 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 sleeplessness, sleeplessness? What brings about all of that? Watch, in Christians' lives who have come to know that Jesus has died for them and they've believed and they've laid their life down Why are we so turbulent still in our lives? And I think Jeremiah would say this. The reason you have not found rest for your souls is you're caught up in this culture and you're caught up in thinking that something new needs to come along. And if Jeremiah could come in here again today and he could stand right here at LifePoint today, he would say this. There is one path that you will find rest for your souls. And that is in a relationship with God's Son and a walk in obedience to His Word. And I've wondered for us, and um, I'll just, I'll be honest with you, I've been up since 2.30 this morning. Just, just wrestling with this talk today, thinking about you and thinking about me, thinking about us together, and praying that we would come to a place maybe today would be the day that there would be a a a surrender to God that says this okay God I I'm trying this I'm I'm, I'm trying everything that's out there and I'm trying to get my hands on, on on the latest everything and what I really need to do is just to go back to what was established in the very beginning and that was a relationship with God that was lost in Genesis 3 but the son of God came to restore that and to reconcile us back to Him. And so what maybe I need to do today is just stand and rest in Him. And I've been up since 2.30 praying that, and I'm going to have a good nap this afternoon after the life group leader meeting, maybe. But do you hear me today, church? Let's be honest. We all wake up in the middle of the night and our brain gets going. And I think at 2.38 a.m., God can meet us in our bed and transform us and remind us that it's not about climbing a corporate ladder. You climb that corporate ladder and you look on the other side of that wall, you know what's on the other side of that wall? Another wall you've got to climb out, it's just empty. 
But there's a hope that comes that God's son came and he wants to fill our lives with his presence and he wants to radically transform us. And so we can't get caught up in whatever's new. We've got to embrace what's always been established. And that's God. He's the pillar. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. Secondly, we can't embrace the moment and rush. Now, if there would have been church marketers back then, they'd have come up to Jesus and they would have said, hey, man, do you see all this stuff that's going on? John's got Jesus' beard, so I've got to come to John here. And a church marketer would have said, hey, John, hey, Jesus, man, everybody's ready to follow you today. They'll go fight the Romans today. Let's go. And Jesus, watch, he didn't get caught up in that. He wasn't going to, because he didn't come to be a part of that kind of movement. He came to lay his life down. And so I want to say to us, sometimes we do this in our lives, and sometimes churches can do this. Sometimes families can do this. We run further ahead than where God is, and God's not there. And we kind of look back and go, hey, God, you want to come? These are my plans. And God, come up here with my plans. And God's saying, no, 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 I'm not a part of that. I'm not a part of that. And so I want to say to us, Jesus didn't rush. You look in the four Gospels, does it ever look like he's rushing anywhere? No. Patient, trusting his Father, waiting for the right time, only saying what the Father said and doing what the Father said. And so Jesus did not move faster than the Spirit. And we must learn that from him. So watch out for embracing the newest trend. Watch out for embracing the moment and rushing into things. Let me remind you of something Paul wrote. Galatians 6 verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And listen to these words. And let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Don't give up investing, Christian parent, in your kids. Don't give up, even though they don't want to listen to the gospel. Don't give up. You who go out and share your faith consistently, do not give up. Life group leader, do not give up. Pour your life into the people you shepherd. Mike, with the students, do not give up. Do not become weary in doing good. Do not do it. Why? Why not? Do, because in due season, Paul says, we will reap if we don't give up. Don't give up. Hang in there. And sometimes, boy, isn't it easy? Just, just throw it away. Go, gosh, just, it's hard. Can I go move to an island somewhere or can I go? It's just difficult. And I want to remind you and I today, Jesus never got in a hurry. We shouldn't either. Let's walk and keep in step with the Spirit. Let me give you a third one. We must avoid this. We must be avoid having a Christian faith that is attracted to the sensational, but avoids seeking to know Christ. What do you mean, Doke? Well, let me give you an example. <clears throat> John chapter 5, Jesus is in the wilderness. All of these people show up in the wilderness, and he teaches all day long. The people are way too far from their home, and so Jesus says to the disciples, hey, we've got to feed all these people. And they're like, are you kidding me? There's no 7-Eleven around here. There's no Costco. 
there's no way to get enough food. Well, what do we got? Well, Andrew found a little boy, the only resourceful person in all these thousands of people. He brought a sack lunch. He's got some fish, kind of sardines, kind of what they were, pickled fish, and he's got some bread. And Jesus says, okay, give them to me. Jesus takes them in his hands. He lifts them up and he blesses them. And he gives them to the apostles and he says, hey, have the people sit down in groups and I want you to go around and I want you to feed the people. And I've always thought, I wonder what they were thinking when they've got these little things in there and they start walking around and they go to this section over here and they, you know, they're looking inside and, and everybody reaches in and grabs and when it's all over, everybody in this section has got their stuff and the basket's full. And scholars estimate, because it says 5,000 men, it could have been upwards to 20,000 people that day when you count women and children. Let's just say it's 12,000. That's a move of God. That's a miracle. That is unbelievable, and the people are experiencing that. Well, the day ends. Disciples get on a boat. They go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks on the water at night over to them. The people wake up who had experienced the eating and they rush to the sea there and they try to find Jesus and they can't find him. And somebody says, hey, guys, during the night um, uh, they went across the lake and they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so in John chapter 6, it tells us the people who had had their stomachs full in the wilderness or in, in the hillside that day, they run along the Sea of Galilee and they get there and this is what the text says. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I tell you, you are seeking me not because, watch this, not because you saw signs. What signs? Yesterday. When I multiplied a little boy's lunch and I fed thousands and thousands of you, you're seeking me not because you saw the miraculous. You're seeking me because I put food in your stomach. Now listen to what they say. Jesus says, do not work for food that perishes. Don't give your life connected to, to things that are not going to last, but pursue food that's going to endure to eternal life, which the Son of Man, me, will give you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So Jesus tells them, the Father of heaven, Yahweh, has placed His seal on me. On me. You saw what I did yesterday. Now listen to the crowd. Don't be hard on them because we can be like them. So then they said to him, What must we do to do the works of God? We want to do the works of God. And Jesus answered, Let me tell you what the work of God is. That you believe in him whom he sent. The Father sent. So you've got to believe in me. So watch this. Listen. So they said to him, So what sign... Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What had happened the day before? Why did they run to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Because they had seen a sign that said, this is God. And now they're in God's presence again and saying, you've got to do more. You've got to do more. They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down. Listen to this. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's speaking about himself. 
And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, Well, okay, I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So the Jews grumbled about him, and they said, I am the bread. He, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered, hey, don't grumble among yourselves about me. Don't do this. And they disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us, watch, his flesh to eat? He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking about a spiritual hunger that could be satisfied by faith in him. And when many, many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, who wants to listen to that anymore? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And you see this all the time in our culture. Pursuing the supernatural without seeking to know Christ. And I'm here today to just call you and I to this great reality. The Son of God is present in this room today. Not just in our lives, but He's present here. He's closer than our breath. He's on every row, every aisle, every part of this room. He is present here and He is calling us to come and partake of Him and to know the reality that the greatest supernatural thing is to know Christ. Paul had such a great resume. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about this great resume. Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of this. I was a Pharisee. And he stacked all of this stuff up. And he said, it's garbage. I don't, e- I don't even want this stuff anymore. Because I found a treasure that's worth everything. And it's not the things that are connected to religion. It's knowing this, that I know God. and Christ lives in me. And so therefore, I want to know Him. And I want to know the power of His resurrection. And so church, I call us to go back 2,000 years ago when in the temple people were getting caught up in believing to a point but not yielding and wanting a Savior. And the biggest grave danger is that we would get caught up in a false confession that's not true. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, listen to this, church, not that did you know my name, but then Jesus says, I didn't know you. I never knew you. So depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think one of the great dangers is that you can be in a room like this today and you cannot know Jesus as your Savior and you can sing the songs and you can feel something because it's moving to be in a room like this. Man, I was sitting right there where Wes is sitting and just hearing y'all sing a while ago, it just was, man, it's, it's incredible. But that doesn't mean that we feel something 
that it's true. But here's how we know that it's true, that we've come to know him. If we have come to know him, there's a desire in our hearts to walk in his commandments. It's one of the confirmations that we know that we are Christians. It's not that we sing and say the right stuff, but there's a desire in us. John talks about that several times in 1 John. There's also reality that because we desire his commandments, that's a confirmation that the Holy Spirit is residing in us because the Spirit wants us to walk and to know the commandments of God. So let's close with this today. 24 and 25. I think I've squeezed everything I can squeeze out of 23. So let's, let's go to 24 and 25. And we'll close with this. So it looked like a move of God was happening. People were believing in Jesus' name, but Jesus does something interesting. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And I want to just close with this today. I want to talk about the shaping of our lives. And I want to talk about this because, boy, I tell you, um, Jesus is different than uh, most of the people I know that are in my profession. Boy, you can get a crowd, and that crowd wants to follow you. You get your people to start counting noses, and, man, you want put to put online, you know, man, this is how many people I had at my meeting, and this is how many people made decisions. And, boy, you just, boy, he could have he just captured all of that and started this incredible, incredible movement. But it says that Jesus just kind of did this. Watch this. Spiritually, he just went. Because they weren't believing in him for salvation. They were believing him because it was really awesome what was happening and taking place. And what this text means in the Greek, that 23 says, and the people were believing in his name, the same Greek word here for entrust, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. And here's what he knew. This is, a, this is a word about the omniscience of Jesus. He knew in their hearts what? That it wasn't true salvation belief. And he knew it. He knew that it wasn't true. And he knew that their belief was superficial because he was doing miracles. And so the text literally means this. But Jesus on his part, even though they were believing in his name, Jesus on his part did not believe and entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was in the heart. He was reading their heart. And he didn't need them to bear witness about about man because he knew himself what was in man. And so while the people were believing in him, Jesus was not believing or trusting in and relying because he saw their heart and he saw the reality of what was there. He was not going to leave his life in their hands, not because he didn't love people, because he absolutely loved everyone in the temple that day, but because he knew the fickleness of the human heart and he knew the lack of stability of the mind and the heart of people and how we can manipulate others even the ones we love, to be shaped into an image that we want without regarding God's perspective for someone else's life. So I'm going to give us two things as we close. For the rest of your life, well, let's just, let me just give an example from me. There's 125 people or so in this room today. Probably 75 or so in the first service. 
with a job like mine, every one of you has a perspective of what the pastor ought to be and what he ought to do, what his family, what his kids should be like. And so I can live my life weekly based on 200 and something people's what they want me to be. And if I do that, that's a pretty tiring life. So that's a big perspective. But some of us are 40 something years old. And we had domineering parents as we grew up who were highly critical of us. And at Christmas and Thanksgiving, we get in the presence of them and they say something. And on the inside, on the outside, we're 45. And on the inside, we shrink back to when we're 10. And we just shrivel up and we just become this person who is shaped by these words that have nothing to do with God. And so we all have to come to a place like Jesus Am I going to allow everybody else in my life to shape who I am or am I going to embrace who God says I am? And this is critical, church. Absolutely critical today. Jesus already, this was settled for Him. He knew the the heart of people that they wanted Him to overthrow Rome. Jesus knew, no, I'm not going to do that. Because my father had already said at my baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus rested in that reality. That he knew what the father wanted of him. He knew that his life was going to be shaped by the father's purposes. And so he wasn't going to buy in to everybody else. And this is the first principle as we, as, as we finish off these closing principles. And it's this one. You and I must entrust ourselves to God, not to people. Ultimately. If you're married in the room today, you know this, that throughout your marriage, we try to manipulate our spouse to be something that we want them to be. And sometimes it's selfish, and sometimes it's godly, and sometimes we can't really tell what it is because our heart is deceitfully wicked. Even in a marriage, a husband must listen to God first and not his wife. A wife should listen to God first and not the husband. Because sometimes a husband wants to manipulate the wife to be something that God doesn't want her to be. And I think one of the freeing things, the most freeing things that could come in our lives today would be this reality. I am going to just entrust my life to God and not to other people. Now, I need to give a caveat with that. Because somebody will hear that and say, well, that means I don't have to listen to anybody in my life. No, that's not what that means. There are over and over instances in the New Testament and the Bible that says submit yourself to godly leaders. Submit yourself to a coach, to a principal, to a teacher, to a boss, etc., etc., etc. It just simply means this. For the rest of our lives, people are going to say stuff about us that's going to be negative and guess what sometimes it's true about us and even though it's true about us if we are a believer God has a perspective of us that's different than what somebody else has and it's this perspective he doesn't want us to stay and and wallow in whatever's wrong in our lives he wants to lift us up and remind us that we don't have to live like that 
but we can live in the reality that we are His. We are marked by the Son of God. And our worth and significance is not in the opinions of others, but it's in what God has said about us. And so, so the, Jesus says, listen, entrust, I did this. I entrusted myself not to the crowd and what they wanted me to do. I entrusted myself to the Father. And next, we entrust ourselves to the words of God and His witness about His children, not what everybody else says. And so if you're here in the room this morning, and you've been divorced, and you still feel a, a shame connected to that, whatever the case may be, and you, you've got the big D that you put on your head, and, and you think, gosh, man, I, I never wanted that to happen. It did happen, and I want you to hear today, that's not what God calls you. He doesn't call you that. He calls you His child. God's not, not, he's not labeling us like that. That's what the world does. God says, you belong to me. And I proved it by putting my spirit in you in salvation and rescuing you because my son came and died for you. And I gave you a piece of paper that has 101 things that should be the shaping words of Christ in our lives. That this is what we listen to. We don't get shaped by the perspective of the world. Look at 10. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. 12. I am set free by the truth. 14. I am right now reconciled to God. 15. I am freed from the power of sin. 24, I am an ambassador for Christ. 29, I am a new person because my old self was crucified with Christ. I am the image and glory of God. 31, I am in triumphant in Christ. 32, 77, I have the intercession of the Holy Spirit for me. 87, I have access through Jesus to the Father. 88, I put off the old man. 98, I know the exceeding greatness of his power to me. 99, I know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. This is, church, who we are. So we let God shape us, and we let not the witness of man shape us, we let the witness of God shape us. And this can be one of the most freeing things in us in our lives. And Jesus just wasn't going to get caught up in what everybody wanted him to rush to do. He just settled in the reality that I belong to my Father and I'm going to do what my Father says. That is significant stuff today. Because you two hours from now, you get an email from your boss and they're upset about something and you're going to go, boy, it's heavy or whatever it is tomorrow afternoon. If you're a parent, what's the most painful thing? If you're a parent, it's the words that, that our kids say to us at times or if they have said something. Sometimes it's painful. This life is going to be painful and there's going to be things said to us. And I want to remind you, 
and I, can, and I do it all the time, and I just want to point right here. This, this is what we cling to. Know this more, know this more, know this more, because here says to you and I that God did something about us that was invaluable and now he's made something unbelievably value that we have become the temple of God himself. Let that wash over us today that his name and his worth have done that for us. All right, let's pray.